This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. Now, there's quite a lot of economics going on right now. And one of the lessons of the last 15 years is that Britain quite often has acute crises, rather more than I would like as someone that's made a terrible lifestyle choice to work on British economic policy, financial crises, Brexit traumas, uh, pandemics, cost of living crisis, and now it turns out uh, stubborn inflation. One of the things that's quite a good idea, though, for countries is to try to wrestle with the current crisis while also attempting to deal with some of the less acute but slow burn crises that uh, that hold countries back. Obviously, that's easier said than done. But one of the unambiguously longer-term problems Britain faces is that it's a low-investment nation. And on whatever metric you choose, uh, invest significantly less public and private um, than most similar economies, and does so consistently year after year after year. And that's what we want to talk about today, particularly the corporate investment part picture. Why do British firms invest less than comparable firms in in similar economies. Whether they're a service co company or a manufacturing company, we see this right across the board. So what's driving that? And then what can government do about that? Because obviously not all the levers sit with government. What could government um, do about that? So that is the plan. And we're doing that as part of the Economy 2030 inquiry, which is a big project running over the last now nearly two years and with six months to go uh, on the future of the UK economy, which is a partnership between the Resolution Foundation and the Centre for Economic Performance at the LSE and funded generously by the Nuffield Foundation. And as part of that, a uh, beyond boosterism, although as I was saying to these guys just now, I wouldn't mind a bit more boosterism in Britain. Uh, right now, it's all a bit booster-free due to the depression settling over the country. But anyway, they are beyond boosterism. What can we do to raise investment is the focus of the report that we have published today. Um, the plan is for you to first of all hear from one of the authors of that um, report, who's Dr. Anna Valera, who's a distinguished policy fellow at the Centre for Economic Performance, one of the authors of the report and a key driver of the Economy 2030 inquiry. And then we've got a great panel, the um, uh, Dame Kate Barker, um, who does many things, and lots of you already know the things she's done over time, but right now is the chair of the University Superannuation Scheme. And those of you who will be paying attention to the discussion we're about to have or have read anything in the press in the last few months will know what role pensions should pay in financing or influencing the investment environment is a key part of this discussion. Then you can hear from Andrew Harrison, who's head of business banking at NatWest. Some of that banking and lending hopefully is facilitating some investment by Britain's firms, an issue we'll come back to. And then you're going to hear from Simon Nixon, who's a journalist, um, has done lo loads of roles over the years, but writes lots of very thoughtful things about some of those big picture trends, not just the day-to-day of what government is confronting in economic policy, but what's the bigger questions we should be asking. So that is the plan. And from Christian Shah, who's an economist at the foundation and one of the authors of the report is also gonna join us for the panel discussion, which you can join in by going onto Slido and putting in hashtag investment nation as always. Right, that is the plan. Everyone happy? Looking moderately content. There's some nodding in the audience. We're very democratic here. Right, Anna, what is in the report? We don't want all 100 pages, but you know, a, sum a summary of it. Thank you, Torsten, and thank you, everyone, for being here today. So our report is called Beyond Boosterism, and what we're looking at is how to realign the policy ecosystem to unleash private investment for sustainable growth. I want to thank all my brilliant co-authors, a couple of whom are in the room, um, and we want to thank the Nuffield Foundation for kindly funding this work. 
Um, this piece of work, the report is over 100 pages long. Um, it's quite a big piece of work and we've been consulting with many experts and stakeholders along the way, so we're really grateful to all their inputs. Um, so we're talking about business investment. Um, and this, as Torsten said, has been low. So our business investment rate, so corporate gross fixed capital formation as a share of GDP, started falling in the late 90s, early noughties. Um, and it's been relatively low versus our core comparators, France, Germany and the US, for some time. But also quite low versus this kind of shaded area, which is um, a number of high income OECD countries. In fact, if you take the period from the financial crisis till today, on average, our business investment rate um, is, has only one country that is worse, and that's Greece. Unfortunate for me being half Greek as well. Um, so this is not explained by our sectoral mix. Um, this is something, you know, when you try and correct for that, we still see underinvestment. Um, and it's, of course, been accompanied by weak and volatile public sector investment, which we've looked at elsewhere in the inquiry. And public sector investment matters for growth in its own right, but also in setting the conditions for businesses to invest. So this is really crucial. Um, in fact, if UK investment had been two percentage points higher to bring it more in line with France, Germany and the US um, over the past 14 years, we estimate GDP could have been about 4% higher today. And this could translate to average wages of around £1,250 per person. So this is kind of a big deal. The UK needs higher business investment. Our investment is unsustainably low. It's been low for some time. And combined with the low public sector investment, this combines to lead to a fall in the capital stock per worker. So while businesses might be able to hold off investment for a while and use their existing assets, it's not sustainable over time. We need an increase in growth. We can clearly see that growth has been missing for some time, particularly productivity growth, which is where sustainable increases in living standards can come from. So we find that growth accelerations are more likely when you have an investment boom, so a rapid acceleration in investment. We also, when you look at the decomposition of where productivity slowdown, where the productivity slowdown has come from in the UK, we see that fixed capital appears to be perhaps more of an issue for us versus our main peers. Innovation, either intangibles and TFP, kind of total factor productivity, all the, all the innovation we can't measure with measured inputs, these also are clearly important and business investment is needed for those things. We also, of course, need large-scale large private sector investment for objectives such as net zero, with all the associated growth opportunities involved in that too, and leveling up. So economic and policy stability is necessary for this. So this is a chart of a measure, an index of economic policy uncertainty. Um, and you can see that this has been elevated since around the time of the Brexit referendum. You can see COVID, you can see the mini budget in there. And this measure of uncertainty has been related to kind of chilling investment. So firms holding off investment activities. Um, and you know, there's been estimates of the impact of the Brexit vote on investment due to this mechanism and also kind of the, the bleaker outlook in terms of trading relationships with Europe. Um, beyond this kind of macro level uncertainty, there's been quite a lot of uncertainty or churn in terms of growth and business policies. So since 2010, we've had nine different business secretaries, four versions of the business department, many different plans and strategies and churn in some of the more micro level policies too. So what we really need is a growth strategy that lasts based on our strengths, strategic priorities such as net zero and policies that last too. But crucially, this isn't going to be sufficient. You can see from this chart earlier in this period when actually our business investment rate started to fall, we're relatively more stable. So this is important, but it's not going to fix everything. We argue that there are kind of broader things we need to do to rewire our investment system, ecosystem. 
And it's not that businesses aren't investing because there's just nothing, there's no profits to be made or no returns to be made in the UK. We show that on aggregate, the returns on investment or on capital are quite good in the UK versus key comparative countries. And in other work, we show the UK has many sources of underlying strength in a number of areas that have been growing in the past and are set to grow in the future. But there are a number of barriers that can be addressed. So we kind of split these into things that prevent firms wanting to invest for long-term growth. And we consider here issues around pressure on management from above, from empowering owners, owners of firms, owners of capital, pressure from below via empowering workers to kind of influence management for longer term, kind of more collaborative decision making. We note that corporate tax levers also do matter. They may not, differences in corporate tax may not explain our chronic underinvestment, um, but they do matter. And we suggest in the report moving towards permanent full expensive, expensing, perhaps making it broader to more assets than plant and machinery, and more broadly, stability in the tax system. This is also an area we've had lots of change over time. Then we look at improving firms' ability to invest. So some firms who are able, who want to invest, face barriers to doing so. And we split this here between planning, planning meaning that you know, firms can't do the projects that they want in the places they want to do them, um, and then kind of we look at specific barriers for SMEs, which are kind of different to some of the larger firms. And then we'll talk about how we sustain a high investment economy more broadly through resourcing and institutions. So on willing to, willingness to invest. So we know from the internationally comparable data that British firms are w relatively worse managed than some of our main comparators, such as the US and Germany. This is bad for investment, it's bad for innovation. We also see that the ownership of British firms is unusually dispersed. So this shows here the proportion of listed companies that have a controlling stakeholder by country. And you can see the UK is really at the bottom of this. So without kind of engaged blockholder owners, there's less pressure on management to think about long-term value creation. So this is kind of a piece of evidence that we, we put forward as a lack of pressure from above. This has largely been driven by an exit of local institutional investors. And we consider that pensions are quite a key route here for having more engaged blockholders as we did in the past. So for example, defined benefit and defined contribution schemes in aggregate, they allocate only about 2% of their assets to directly held UK equities, where they're actually actively investing in those companies. So we talk about pension reforms as a way of delivering concentrated active ownership for UK listed firms and investment into productive assets into the UK. So looking at the pension landscape, there's a lot of disagreement about which part of the pensions landscape should be reformed or how. We consider each part separately because there are different challenges. So in defined benefit, this is kind of the largest part of assets, 70% currently, about 1.7 trillion pounds. Um, these are in surplus currently, many of them. So what we're thinking about here is how to offer alternatives to insurance buyout for exiting funds to enable more active investment in equities and risk assets. So we know that the move out of these types of assets and into bonds was driven by regulatory and accounting changes. But um, sorry, in order to do that, we suggest two things. One, expand the remit of the Pension Protection Fund, which is run with a long-term focus to allow it to act as a state consolidation option for solvent pension schemes. And then we consider that we need more action to finalize the legislative framework around private sector super funds, allowing members to benefit from higher returns sharing some of the surplus too. Undefined contribution, 
This is currently smaller, but this is the area that's growing with lots of active members. But it's currently very fragmented across around 27,000 schemes, many of them very small. Here we suggest turbocharging consolidation. This would enable DC schemes to be large enough to kind of take on more risky assets and more actively invest. We propose doing this through transferring to authorised master trusts. These are multi-employer DC pension trusts for funds failing to meet stringent value for money tests. And the aim here is to kind of cut that number of funds by around 90%. So fewer, smaller firms, uh, funds. Then on local government pension schemes, this is around, well, over 300 billion of assets, but they're currently spread across local pension boards, around 100. We consider here that we could have one consolidated pension fund, which would then be similar in scale to some of the large Canadian and Dutch pension funds. Taken together, these reforms could help drive scale in the active pension market. So more engaged ownership and also some more investment into risk assets. We think that these would generate at least good outcomes for savers, but also significantly better outcomes for the UK economy as a whole. So now turning to worker voice. So this is another area where we stand out. So we stand out here versus other European countries, many of which have mandatory requirements for board level worker representation. The UK doesn't have this, although there are some kind of recommended things to, to encourage collaboration. So the evidence, some really careful studies based on EU, experience, EU country experiences, suggest that actually this kind of mechanism is good for investment. It doesn't simply lead to higher wages for workers. And the mechanism that we think is at play and the literature thinks is at play here is that repeated interactions between workers and managers help to facilitate cooperation, build trust and thinking for long term. So more investment in long term projects and value. So we propose mandatory rep representation, say about 20% of the board in larger companies. And we recognize this is a material change for UK businesses, but we just, you know, we set out in the report, this is quite normal in many other European countries. And it was in fact the policy of a conservative prime minister just a few years back. So moving on to the ability to invest. A key barrier is the UK's planning system. It's quite restrictive by international standards. Um, there's quite a few reports, quite a few academic papers that make this point. We can kind of illustrate this restrictiveness by this chart, which looks at the lack of growth in built up land per capita. So it's normalized by population here. And you can see that the UK is one of the only countries where this has actually declined in the most recent periods of this chart. Now you might say, well, you know, maybe it's to do with differences in density. Well, some of the other countries that have actually seen an increase in this measure are similarly dense to the UK. Or you might say maybe the UK is protecting more of its land, such as forests or kind of special um, preservation areas. Well, it turns out that both Germany and Netherlands have a higher share of protected land than the UK. So we, we consider it's this ex post system, discretionary decision making and lack of fiscal incentives for development in local areas that really hold back progress. And this prevents specific investments, say uh, a lab in, in, a, in Cambridge or Oxford cluster or a piece of infrastructure. We're seeing that a lot with net zero infrastructure, but it also prevents investment via the housing restrictions, which prevent innovative clusters and agglomeration economies from developing, which is really important for growth in the UK. So our recommendations here are that we should have a set of reforms and you know this is building on a lot of other papers and, um, and kind of recommendations elsewhere but what we need is for every area to have a plan and this should lead the decision process. So we need to have more simpler, more simple, proactive, more binding plans basically. 
Currently, about 40% um, of English um, local areas have plans in place. Moving towards a zone-based approach where there are designated growth areas would be useful. What we need is to, for plan and decision-making to be at the right level, so a level that can actually internalise the benefits and the costs of development, so reflecting a functional economic area. Um, local authorities should have meaningful financial incentives for development, both commercial and residential, and we have, we'll be thinking about fiscal devolution elsewhere in the inquiry in more detail. And this should all be accompanied by improved national coordination of, of the many conflicting demands on land, whether it's growth, net zero, environmental conservation, better coordination at the heart of government, thinking about planning barriers which currently are preventing progress on many of those things. We recognise that this can be politically very challenging and in the report we say perhaps some of these ideas can be explored at the local level. For SMEs we recognise there's a different set of barriers. We split SMEs into kind of the high growth economy say 30,000 or thereabouts firms that are really high growth potential and there's evidence that they might access access to the type of capital they need to scale, particularly outside of London. Here we talk about boosting the British Business Bank, allowing it to borrow on markets with government guarantee and perhaps offer a co-investment fund, allowing pension funds to benefit from some of its expertise. And then we look at the broader space of promoting diffusion of digital technologies and management practices across smaller companies across the economy. This is an area I've worked on a lot. Again, a lot of chopping and changing here. We have a big program in place. Let's kind of build out the reach of that program, expand experimentation and evaluation so we can really learn what works and help implement policies that raise investment in willing SMEs. Okay, how do we, oh, how do we sustain high investment? Well, first we need to think about where the money comes from. We consider that at least some of the increased investment should come from higher domestic saving. The UK's saving rate is pretty low by international standards. And we consider perhaps phasing, given current issues and, and kind of constraints on, on households, phasing in an increase in the minimum savings rate within pensions auto-enrollment. So this specifically by levelling up the minimum contributions by both employers and employees to about six by six percentage points. And then secondly, it's really this institutional point. We need policy and stability and credibility here. Um, and this is an area where we have had some progress in recent times. We had the Industrial Strategy Council. Um, this was disbanded. We believe that we need stronger institutions surrounding growth policy. Um, and we recommend a growth act to establish an independent statutory body, the National Growth Board. And this would advise on strategy coordinate policy around different related areas of government departments and monitor progress holding government to account. So in conclusion, um, we are recognising here this is a very complex area, it's going to be difficult to do lots of these things. We also recognise that there's much more work to be done, um, at, but we consider this is the start of a process that we set out in this report. Um, it's going to be hard, but it's necessary because we want to see an increase a sustainable increase in living standards and we need to get investment for productivity growth that would drive that. So our reforms that we set out in this paper are part of a wider economic strategy which we're going to set out in the, economic, in the Economy 2030 inquiry and crucially we have further work on human capital which obviously drives investment too. Um, taken together we consider that what we set out here will help move the UK from living off the past to investing in the future. Thank you. Great, thanks Anna. Um, so hopefully that's a lot of um, food for thought. I appreciate that's a big canter through a lot of material. If you take away like a, a few things from it, it would be 
it's worth focusing on areas where Britain is an outlier. Right? There's lots to be lots of rows to had, be had about exactly where Britain sits on lots of different metrics, but on areas where research is telling us we're very unusual, low levels of investment, diffuse ownership of companies, maybe those things are telling us something important and we should focus on them a bit more. And we're saying there's things you shouldn't worry about that policymakers often ask us about in the investment space. Don't worry so much about the returns on investment. They look perfectly fine. Don't worry about finance availability in aggregate, although you probably do want to worry about some SMEs. Instead, worry about ownership and the ability to get anything built. Right. That's like, it says some headlines to make sure we take away from what I appreciate is a really complicated area. Right, we're going to chew through all of those as we go through as well. But Kate. Thank you. It's a really great presentation. It's a really ambitious report. Um, and it makes me feel incredibly old um, because in my career I've worked on a lot of these issues. I was at the CBI for quite a long time. Um, I then wrote the reports on housing and planning, which you generously reference in the in the report, and I can see some of it coming around coming around again. And now I chair two very different actually pension schemes. So unfortunately, I'm obliged, I'm unfortunately obliged to have, have views on some of these things. I mean, the, your, the basic proposition is completely correct. We don't. We have a long history of low investment in the UK. In fact, if anything surprised me, it was your first chart to discover that actually at some points we've had quite a reasonable rate of investment. I don't, uh, I don't ever remember anybody remarking on that. Um, just on business investment, I completely agree with your points about expensing. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And since I spent uh, nine years at the CBI arguing for that, it's hardly surprising that I, I, would, I, would, say that, I would say that now. There's something about volatility, however. I mean, I was at the Bank of England during the period that was called the Great Moderation, uh, in which at one point, I think Mervyn King said the great thing about the fact that we'd introduced all this macro stability was that firms didn't have to worry about the macro economy. And a piece of work which was done for me by Miles Parker at the time was, I thought, interesting because it showed that in, in the UK, as indeed in the US, although there was much more macro stability, the individual firm level the instability of profits and sales growth had in fact increased. And that suggested that actually micro shocks were becoming more and more important to firms. And with the sort of rapid developments in technology and turnover, I would suspect that is still true. And that, but actually one reason that was proposed for this was that actually greater macro stability exposed competitive pressures much more broadly. And so actually the life of firms was, more, was, was actually made more difficult. So I, I, it's, people often say what we want to do for firms is reduce uncertainty, but the truth, uncertainty is just there. That's not, you know, it's, um, it doesn't help if you have policy uncertainty as well, but uncertainty about your markets, whether people are going to want your goods exists for, exists for companies. Finance gaps, pension funds. Well, pension funds used to invest more in the UK equity market, and then two things happened. One was that closed defined benefit schemes were asked to um, reduce their risk because some of them ran into quite a lot of trouble. It's worth remembering. It's worth remembering that. I mean, it's the start of Maxwell and greater uh, and greater the savings. But the other thing actually was that when I started working pension funds, we were all accused of home bias. You invest far too much in the UK. Why do you invest in the UK? We're an aging economy. If we want to have, when we want to have our money out in the future, we want to have it from people abroad in the young economies. So it's kind of a bit of a surprise to discover that we should have all been investing in the UK all along. So I think we need to think about this. I also think, by the way, that closed DB pension schemes, by and large, are a bit of a lost cause in terms of getting more investment out of them. It's very fashionable now because they're all in surplus, or apparently in surplus. There's a 
lively discussion about this yesterday at the DWP committee. But the truth is, if we see gilt yields fall by 2% over the next three years before everybody has their valuations round again, that some of these surpluses will disappear. And it's no wonder that, and that therefore employers are not going to be terribly keen to want to underwrite the risk of some of these deficits, of some of these deficits coming back. That probably means that the question we should be asking is whether the way in which we do pension fund valuations are fit for purpose. Um, frankly, as responsible for a large open scheme, um, how we go about the valuation, how we set the assumptions, really is trying to answer the unanswerable. When Kay and King wrote about the lunacy of this in Radical Uncertainty, they were completely right. It is a very difficult activity with a huge amount of uncertainty. But the trouble is, at the end of the day, I have to set a price for what people are going to contribute. And saying it's very uncertain doesn't really help me to price benefits. There's a, I, I agree with you about trying to move away from the rush to buy out with insurers, because we're now starting to worry about whether we're um, agglomerating a lot of risk in insurers. But pension fund, super funds so far haven't made much progress. So we need to think a bit about why they haven't made much progress and how we could help them to make progress. I, I instinctively dislike using the PPF. PPF is there for a very distinct purpose, and it's sort of underwritten by government. I'm not sure I want government to underwrite any more pension schemes than the, one, than the ones that were in difficulty. I'm not really sure I want the, pension, the PPF to become, to become a, great, a great thing, and it's, you know, it does deploy some risk capital. The two things I think are important in the pensions area are that we don't hamper open DB schemes. I'm really troubled by that some of the proposals around um, from the regulator at the moment on that and that we consolidate DC schemes. And I would focus on those two. I wouldn't worry so much about what happens to closed, to closed DB schemes. It'd be better if we had a better environment for DB schemes. We are at the moment at USS talking about conditional indexation as something that in the future would enable us for future accrual to take a bit more risk and that would be um, consistent with us being able to in invest more invest more riskily. Thirdly, planning. I, I really agree with what you say here. One thing I sometimes think we should avoid is saying it's the fault of planning. It's, then it implies it's the fault of planners. Absolutely isn't the fault of planners. A lot of this is the fault of politicians. Politicians really dislike taking decisions in the planning field. We see this in local authorities. We see it in major infrastructure projects. One of the recommendations I made now nearly 20 years ago was that major infrastructure projects should be de decided by a non-political body. That was changed in 2010 when the um, Conservative government came in. And so a lot of these decisions are now back to sitting on ministers' desks. They don't want to take decisions ahead of elections. This, isn't, this is a really desperate thing. But actually, good planning is what we want. And good planning means, as you completely correctly say, looking over wider areas. The regional um, authorities weren't great but they're a lot better than devolving everything to local areas where everything is deeply, um, is deeply confused. And then finally, I really agree with your point about land. There was a good report recently from the Geospatial Commission, Finding Common Ground, about trying to think through how we decide how we are going to use land. And you need to do it at a really large area, possibly even as large as the UK, um, either, you know, because you want to think, where are we going to site wind farms? Where are we going to site solar farms? If you're a local authority and you're asked, you've got this bit of relatively good agricultural land, people put in a bid for a solar farm, how do I take that decision? Well, really, you've no idea because you're taking that decision at far too low a level. You have to think about things like grid capacity. So I, I think the, the, your suggestions on planning 
they're clearly on the right lines, and that's not really surprising because many of them things I said 20 years ago. So, all I could, and um, when I started working on housing, Christine Whitehead said to me, I've been saying this for 20 years and it's made no difference, and now I'm saying to you, I've been saying this for 20 years and it's made no difference. Thank you. Well, that's a nice bit to end on. <laughs> Let's kind of give Kate a half clap for that, the nihilism at the end. Um, do you know what I think the difference is to 20 years ago? Nobody I'm older. Yes, you are, okay. Are some other okay, fine. All right. A difference from 20 years ago is no one thinks it's going well anymore. Britain, that is. Like, like, like the economic GDP growth was perfectly decent 20 years ago. Maybe it stopped feeding through into wage growth to some degree. But the difference is, leaving aside Boris Johnson now and again, no one is like saying Britain's like going gangbusters, so we don't need to do anything. So that's my case for not total nihilism. Okay, just stop us. I'll cheer me up. That's my. That's what I'm here for. That's that's, that's my role in life. Right, Andrew. What's going on in business land? Yeah, I mean, perhaps a a few observations first, and then three areas where I think we could take action. So, I guess echoing some of the earlier comments around business investments, you know, structurally weak in the UK. You know, uh, twelve times as many firms in the UK are underinvesting as those overinvesting. And I think the, you know, the comments around this is a long-term trend, it pre-existed the financial crisis, so this isn't a, a new issue. And I think also you know, what we see as well is that you know, growth in the UK uh, is very disproportionately driven by the very small number of scale-up businesses. So I think, Anna, you said 2.5% you know, uh, of companies in the UK are scale-up businesses, you know, 50% more productive. They employ 30% of the SME workforce. So that scale-up you know, population is, is hugely important, but small. Um, and I guess my, my final you know, perhaps observation is around uh, underserved segments as well. You know, so you know, we've got underserved segments and regional uh, disparity. And again, I, I think this is you know, very much around scale-up rather than start-up. Um, you know, there are around about 800,000 uh, businesses born through COVID. You know, the potential of those businesses is around about 20 billion. Uh, but the opportunity is to help them survive and scale. And that's where traditionally I think we see difficulty in the UK. And, and just a few facts around that. You know, so tech industry um, um, entrepreneurs in the UK, you know, 30% less female tech industry for, um, entrepreneurs than in the US. Um, the Rose Review uh, identified that there's a 250 billion uh, GVA opportunity by helping you know, female uh, founded businesses scale and start at the same rate as male businesses. Ethnic minority businesses, we've done a lot of work with Aston University with their Time to Change report on this as well. And you know, if we were able to um, support ethnic minority businesses to scale, there's 100 billion uh, GVA there. And again, it's not startup, it's really scale up, which is stopping uh, the success there. And finally, you know, that regional disparity, you know, the highest performing regions have 70% higher productivity than the lowest performing. So I guess when you look across that, yeah, when we talk about levelling up, there's lots of dimensions to think about, which I think would drive you know, lot, lots of benefit. So I guess in terms of my, my sort of three areas where I think we could focus, I think firstly, you know, business support, and we sort of touched upon this. I, I think there is no shortage of business support in the UK, you know, from banks and uh, other you know, trade bodies, etc. But you know, it's really difficult for a business to navigate through this. You know, so our research would say that only one in five um, SMEs actually find support which is relevant to them, and then only one in 20 actually go on and actually implement something which is worthwhile and productive for their business. So this real drop-off uh, in terms of... Um, uh, is the conclusion from that that the support is rubbish, 
or that we're not doing it? Well, I, What's I, the conclusion from that? I, I, Give up or do better? Well, I, I think, I think it's, a, it's a bit of both, actually. So I, I think it's, one, it's very fragmented. So I think the actual quality of the support is actually you know, good. Not, not everywhere, but I think generally good. But it's very fragmented. It's very difficult to find. And if you're running, particularly an SME, you know, your time to go online and try to find what the sport is, it's very limited. So I think it's just very difficult to na navigate through that. And, you know, you know, there are a number of government schemes um, out there, you know, the recovery loan scheme, etc. but only 1% of eligible businesses actually access, um, you know, businesses that are eligible for the government support actually access it. So again, a real drop off in terms of accessing what's there. So I think, you know, making it easy to find um, is, is important. But I think there's also a cultural point as well around, you know, um, you know UK business owners, management, really um, valuing learning and development as a key part of how to drive productivity and value for their businesses. And again, you know, I think you can see help to grow scheme, really, really good, relatively low take up. You know, so these schemes are there, but the take up is, is, is low. And I think, you know, um, you know, placing value on spending the time out of your business is, is really important. Uh, but I also think that these opportunities to use data to drive much more personalised support to business owners. So rather than having to find it yourself, let's use the data to identify you know, which businesses need which type of support and personalise it. I think the second area um, is around that stable environment that promotes you know, long-term investments. I think particularly net zero. Um, so we touched upon this earlier. You know, there is no real long-term industrial strategy. Um, and that you know, doesn't link to long-term in incentives, whether that's tax and such like. And again, you know, is that really integrated with the wider ecosystem as well, which we need to create the skills for the future? So you know, transition to net zero, huge opportunity, really, really important. But again, you know, are, we, are we really thinking through what skills we need in the workforce in terms of you know, um, you know, heat pump engineers or whatever, retrofit to really drive this? And I think that needs end-to-end, long-term thinking. Um, and I guess linked to that as well, you know, how do we lower the investment thresholds in net zero and green investment? You know, um, you know, to encourage businesses to make that step. And I think you know, um, lowering some of those thresholds, I think, is incredibly important. Uh, and then my final point was, I think, access and attitude to funding. Um, so I think, uh, you know, as the report you know, brings out, I don't think there's necessarily a lack of funding out there. Um, I, I would say that, you know, the, for the smallest businesses, it's much more difficult to, to access funding. So that might be something we want to come back to. But almost half of SMEs in the UK are persistent non-borrowers. Um, and I do believe, you know, that there is a generally cautious attitude uh, to taking on debt and investing, probably because mm -hmm. of some of this uncertainty uh, which, which, which exists. There's a concentration of equity and angel funding in London and the South East. Um, so it's a really unequal playing field. If you're in the North East or the North West, the Midlands, much more difficult you know, to access that. Um, but you know, the BGF and the British Business Bank, I think are starting to, to make some impact there. Um, and I, as I say, I think accessing early stage funding is really, really difficult. And you know, I think you know, the pension funds may be part of the solution, but it's not just the funding, it's, it's access to the markets, it's distribution. So how do we get people across the UK talking to the businesses, helping them access funding? It's not just about making the funding available. And I guess that's you know, probably my, my final um, point here is I think this just needs a, a joined up collaborative approach by all parties, you know, banks, you know, um, pension funds, other investors, etc., to really figure out you know, how do we help more businesses in the UK scale. Great. Thank you very much, Andrew.
Tottenham, what would you do? <laughs> well, I think uh, I think it's a really good report, really interesting, and, and absolutely the, the, the asking all the right questions and coming up some very interesting answers. Um, uh, I totally agree with the, your uh, sort of headline point. That I, I don't think that it's um, we're really talking about availability of finance as being the core problem here. I think that, that you know we live in a world of um, free capital flows, and there's an abundance of um, of capital. When, you know, when the government boasts about having more unicorns in Britain than the rest of Europe combined, you know that's partly because there's so much capital here. The rest of Europe brings their unicorns to Britain to to uh, to seed them. Um, so uh, you know, I, and and, um, and I, I, so I think it's not one way one could, but it's not really availability of capital where really that's a problem in Britain. It's the price of capital. Uh, and if, if one looks at the the, um, the, the stock market, it, it gives the it, it tells you the, the story. The um, FTSE 100 is valued at about a 25% discount on a forward price earnings multiple to other comparable major markets. Um, so, you know, so you know, the, the price of the, which effectively is a way of saying that the required returns from the market for businesses listed in Britain is far higher than it is in the rest of in other developed countries. Um, you know, so you know, there's a problem. So that and that that sort of points to where the problem is, I think, which is that um, Britain is seen as a politically, I think, primarily it's a politically risky place to invest, or it's an unattractive place to invest from the equity market, and I think that tells a story for the economy generally. Uh, I agree with the report. I don't think that um, tax is the um, is the real problem here. If tax was the problem, if tax, I mean, we, we experimented with lowering the corporation tax for 15 years and it had no impact on this investment problem whatsoever. So I don't think that the tax rate's too high, but I do agree that um, uh, making, that, that, that stability and certainty in the tax system is required and um, is important and that the, making the expensing uh, permanent is, I think, is, should be a priority. Uh, so I, I think that's a, a important. But I think you know that generally the economy in, in Britain has been through a series of very big shocks. The 2007 crisis was a big shock to Britain's by, by far its most important industry, financial services. That had a huge impact on productivity that's rippled through the whole economy. And then Brexit, of course, has been a, a you know a, just a, a, a you know involved ripping up the country's entire economic model with consequences for every single sector. So it's it's no surprise that. That that has created a political uncertainty. Um, it's also, I think, um, looking forward to add sort of the, the, uh, the gloomsterism. I mean, I think that, uh, of course, the, the, the biggest risk now with Brexit is not just the, the, the first round effects of having destroyed the economic model, that it's turned the country into a sort of lobbyist paradise. And so we have to be very careful when we're talking about some of these reforms. And we can see this already in the city, for example, and I think it's very important when we come to talk about the pensions system. Uh, you can see already a huge lobbying campaign going on in the city to transform the pensions, to, to get their money on the pension system. That is not about, uh, although they try to say it's about creating access to finance, that's, that's self-serving and bogus. It's about actually get them getting their hands on uh, the country's pension and retirement savings for their own, uh, to, to underpin their own businesses. Um, so we need to be very careful uh, when we discuss changing reforms to things like the pension system that we're not playing into the hands of a very powerful lobby. Um, uh, so, um, so you, you don't want to say, you mean, but, so who do you mean specifically? You mean the, the London Stock Exchange? Well, there's been a whole series of reports in the last yeah. two or three months, all of them identifying 
claiming that it's about finance, claiming the pension assets and saying and wanting to rip up the solvency two reforms of insurance or changing um, bits of the banking reforms or um, uh, some of some of the ideas around the pension consolidation. Yep. And it's all being presented as this is going to boost access to finance. And I don't think access to finance is the problem at all. This is all about actually trying to underpin, um, you know, to try, try to try and get to, to try and underpin the IPO market for the sake of a bunch of equity capital markets bankers. So we have to be very careful about that. Um, where I think you, um, uh, where the report I think is really interesting and touches on a very long running but important debate is ownership. Um, this is a this is a this debate goes back many decades. Um, uh, and uh, but you know there's always been a tension between the British model of very uh, of a sort of very competitive market for corporate control and a continental market based around sort of the German Mittelstand companies or the Italian family-owned companies where essentially if the, the, the whole corporate ecosystem is designed to ensure that the ownership of a company remains in the same hands for many decades and is passed on. And of course, uh, it, and the advocates of our model would say, well, corporate control, a competitive market for corporate control drives efficiency and uh, and keeps management honest and uh, and and, boost, and 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 which has some validity uh, versus the sort of what was always regarded as the stodgy corporatist model of the continent, uh, which you know allowed you know companies to you know to to, to coast or whatever. Um, but actually, I think there's a sort of um, there, there. But but I think that what we've seen with the what we see with our model. Is that it's very good, perhaps, at driving cost efficiencies and profitability, and you can see that in your returns data. But it's not very good at driving long-term investment because companies are constantly being primed for sale. You know, you know, the managements are constantly incentivized to um, to to be you know for a, for a takeover bid at any moment, and and, and the owners will sell out. Uh, that's the sort of that core of the British model, uh, and so. Um, you know, and in a sense, the market is coming up with its own solution that which is private equity, which is uh, you know that, that which is which is essentially the solution to that that the markets come up with. And so, what we're seeing is the sort of de-equitization of the public market. So, I think if I you know I think one thing I think the, the, the report um, you know I think it, it looks looks at this through the prism of the public markets, but I think that you know we need to acknowledge that increasingly the private markets is the core of where these things are being resolved. I think your point about um, uh, ownership, uh, but workers, I think, is very interesting because um, uh, that's, um, I think, is one, one of history's ironies that the British imposed the dual board system on German economy after the Second World War because they thought that if you put workers on the boards, it would stop the managers, you know, the, the owners becoming Nazis. Um, so the, you know, so it was sort of, it was sort of political reason, but actually, it's been, you know, and 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 it was seen again 20 years ago. When we were the, gloating about Germany being the sick man of Europe, um, we thought that, that, that this bit of the German model was a great weakness. But of course, after the financial crisis, it turned out to be a huge strength because the German workers and the managers managed to work out very important reforms um, of the corporate, of, you know, and then had a decade of, of, of excellent growth. Uh, I'm, so I think this is, a, this is something that's totally contrary to the model we have in Britain of you know, aggressive worker relations. Uh, I think, though, on the other hand, your point about a patient ownership, you know, I think in our current ownership model in Britain, actually the, 
the people with the longest term commitment to a company are its workers. They're the ones who have, the, the great, in a sense, the greatest stake in its own, in the absence of a shareholder that, you know, in the public markets may have a time horizon of two years or in the pr private equity market, seven years. The, the, the workers are the ones who may be willing or push for a deal that may increase investment in return for productivity and productivity reform. So I think that's very important. Um, I already said, I, 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 on the pensions, I, I agree with what Kate said, but um, I, I think be very careful about direct benefits. I think we should just, you know, we've wrecked that system and uh, we just have to, I think, it, it, I mean, I think it's, it's horrendous that we're sitting here 20 years after we wrecked it saying 70% of the UK assets are in that. that the real story is that, is that we have destroyed our entire pension system and it's the, 30, it's the, the, people, it's the people who are in the, the direct contribution, we need to worry about that. If we can do anything to reduce costs, that's great, but I don't think, um, my, I have one of my many pension funds is a SIP, a self-invested pension fund. Uh, since 2016, I'm pretty sure none of, thing, none of it's been invested in Britain, and uh, I'd be horrified if any investment fund, if any pension fund that I was invested in was over-allocated. We're trying to, to turn that around so you wouldn't be horrified. But, <laughs> but that comes to the, the final point, which is I think that we, you know, the, 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 you've identified, I think, you know, the key areas. That planning is absolutely critical. I think that absolutely that, that is the issue. Um, I don't think, I mean, obviously you're talking about private investment, but I think that it's totally linked to public investment. Um, the, um, our infrastructure is crumbling in this country. It's a terrible state, uh, whether it's, you know, from broadband to uh, the grid to net zero. Uh, that, you know, the one thing that I, I think tells that story is that the, the Blair government in 2001 brought in um, a very good reform um, for national strategic infrastructure. Uh, and the idea was that if you came up with national uh, strategic policy plans for different bits of the of the infrastructure system, and that would basically fast track through the through the system, they were supposed to be reviewed every five years. Most of them haven't been reviewed for a decade, haven't been updated for over a decade. They're completely now redundant because they they're totally out of date. There's nothing uh, on energy or infrastructure that's been done since net zero. Uh, the water one was dribbled out a few days ago, a few weeks ago. Um, that was the first time it hadn't been nothing been done for over a decade. So, you know, I would put a focus there. Uh, one final thing, not in your report, but it's a total bugbear, a complete bugbear of mine, and I think it goes to the heart of all this. I would put financial education on the national curriculum, and uh, and I would say that if you, if if you, if people are going to stay made to stay in school till they're eighteen, rather than making them do extra maths, I'd put I'd make them two classes in financial. How, how education. is this going to get? How is this going to get some investment up? Well, we're going to get savvier managers. Well, we're talking about long-term reforms okay. here, aren't we? Okay. So I mean, you know, it, it, <laughs> but I think that well, I think on, on on several levels. Firstly, to give people some kind of. Um, uh, understanding how to manage their own finances and manage, because because the great failure of our pension reform is that we moved to this direct contribution system uh, which you know at the time I suppose the hope was we kind of might move to a more like the American system where people run their own 401ks but we haven't got to that level at all people still essentially assume that you know allow their money to be passively managed I think if we could get you know people I don't think um, most people really understand how the, how the money works. And then on the business side, you know, financial education, people need to be, can be okay. more business savvy in their own Great. Businesses. Right, you all need educating, right? Thank you very much, Simon. <laughs> right, okay, as you've all experienced, this is quite a lot of ground to cover. So we've got 30 minutes to try and to dig into this. So let's do the problem 
a bit and if there's any bits we want to unpack where there may be disagreements and then let's do like what earth do we do about the problem because everyone's agreeing it's quite big and one thing i'm going to push us all on is given that everyone's saying the problem's quite big it existed during a period of stability the um because although overall uk investment is low from the 90s yep. it, it is it is the early 2000s where you see the fall in the private sector investment during the stable the nice decade as Mervyn called it when he was saying giving those speeches mm -hmm. the um so what do we actually think could plausibly make a difference yeah, because a lot of people say, oh, this one little tweak that will sort out the problem. But is it really, is it, could it plausibly make a um, difference? So on the problem, first of all, so everyone, I think, agrees the low investment is there and everyone agrees it matters. Unless anyone wants to say it doesn't matter. Because historically, some people would have said, it's good that we're a low investment nation. We can consume more, which we do. But yeah, we can consume more than we otherwise would. It shows how efficient our firms are. So first thing is, would anyone on the panel or in the room like to make the case for it being good that we're a low investment nation? No one? I wouldn't like to make that case, but a point I omitted to make, and in a way Simon's just touched on, is that if you look at the UK, we tend to be relatively impatient. We don't value the future very much relative to today. That's sort of what came out of your financial. And changing that to persuade us that we want to invest and not to consume, which on the whole is rather more enjoyable, yeah. is... Lies at, lies at the root of that. And, and actually, these deep behavioural things are something that we haven't really talked about. Yeah, I think the Prime Minister thinks that, actually. He's quite on the, like, British culture's the problem. Yeah, which like, is easy to say, but, but and I, I think there's some truth in it. Do? How you change it, it's really We're going to educate it. And, hur and hurdle rates tend to be quite high for business investors. Explain people hurdle rates? UK. People, companies look for a high rate of return before they invest yep. relative to other countries. We, we have been through phases in this country where we've been a very significant investor yeah. investment yeah. phases um, in, the, you know, in the late 19th century and, yeah. and after the Second World War. But yeah. they tend to have, I said they tend to have been accompanied by, by much, much higher levels of taxation than we have now. And um, you know, the, the big change that we made in Britain in the 1980s was that we, mm. we essentially moved, we, we, we slashed taxes and privatised the utilities mm. and privatisation delivered as in the same as with uh, as we were discussing in the context of um, uh, of private companies, it delivered fantastic efficiency savings. But it, what it hasn't delivered, as we're discovering now, to our cost, is it just didn't deliver investment. And it's yeah. and now we have a serious. That is, to my mind, that is mm. the core of the. I would call it a crisis. We have a separate note coming on regulated investment mm. there, where that is exactly right. I think we're focused on price, but not. So I, th so I think that's the core of actually what is a crisis now. Um, oh my God, they have as all the sewage and the rest. Right. Okay. Let's do. Let's do the problem. So someone, has, Kate, has raised a question here, which isn't quite. I'm going to bastardise her question slightly. So she's asking, is this just? Is Richard Murphy, who's a kind of like left-wingish economist guy or accountant actually, I think, the, um, uh, it's about firms paying too much dividends and that's the problem, right? The underlying problem is, so the, the, but let's broaden it out because this is about what's happening right now. Are dividends and profits driving the inflation? So let's not do that. There, we're gonna come back to the other events, but let's do, the British firms do have higher dividends than most European and actually I think American companies. The, um, and there is something in a, and lots of the ways firms would do fund investment is from retained profits, right? So there is to some degree a trade-off between dividends and future investments. Uh, we don't put loads of emphasis on that in this report, but is that, because we're more asking if they've got the money, why aren't they investing it rather than is the dividend per se the problem? But Kate, do you think too high dividends is part of the problem? I can only comment from businesses I've sat on the board of, and yeah. I have sat on the board of, of a few, and I have actually honestly never faced a crisis between investment and dividends. 
Yeah. So what's our conclusion from that? Because so our but, they, but I'm sure there are other, I'm sure there are companies where this arises. But there is something really odd about one of the things that the city apparently likes. You know, when you're on the boards, these investment people that Simon was rightly so disconcerted about come and tell you about what investors like. And apparently, like what's called a progressive dividend, so you have to keep raising it every year. This seems. This, I've always argued against this on a board because it seems to me slightly nuts because you should pay according to the circumstances of the year. So there is an issue, I think, there about dividends. It's, I wonder if that's a cultural issue because, I mean, in a way, it, that should no longer be the case. I mean, mm. the reason for the historically for the dividends was because the pension funds needed it. But now the pension funds aren't in equities and uh, you know, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't need the dividends. So there should be much less pressure on, on yep. businesses now to, to deliver that, um, uh, those dividends for, for a particular cohort of investors. Yeah. I mean, our argument is, oh. that, let's not go into all that because that's a complicated point, but the, the basically the, the, the wider problem is the appetite for investment. And you're seeing one consequence yeah. of that is higher dividends yeah. rather than it being the cause of the low yeah, I think, investment. Yeah. I guess it would suggest yeah, that yeah. investors are, you know, they don't trust the longer term, you know, uh, return out of the UK, right. therefore a shorter term cash dividend is more. Okay, so, so that's, I think that's it's, good. A, it's yeah. a symptom, as you yeah. say, rather than passive. Okay, so that is a really good way of thinking about it. Okay, so, yeah, so yes, we agree with that. The question is then why? Why do investors in Britain particularly think that? So it might be they think the like, long-term growth prospects are much bleaker. Remember, this happened. This, this is starting in the 2000s when everyone was writing all the like all the Economist articles were like Britain good, Germany bad, basically. Just slightly unfairly caricature of the mid 2000s <laughs> Economist, but basically that's what they were saying. So, what's our conclusion from that? It, it wasn't rates of return are fine, relatively. Um, it fell when people thought Britain was a good place to invest. So, our answer is that's when ownership starts to change and become much more diffuse, and management are under less pressure to have a long-term investment plan. Mm. That isn't. But are there any alternative hypotheses? Why does why does mid to early two thousand Britain stop investing? Come on. I think you know there's different reasons in different times, and we know that since the financial crisis there have been new reasons like financial constraints following the immediate aftermath, uncertainty following Brexit. So perhaps at the early stage it was a little bit more a complacency and perhaps a view things are quite good at the moment, so we don't necessarily need to be investing more because our bottom line's okay. So I think it's probably an issue of kind of some underlying factors that have been there all along, but also some change over time. I'd just say also with the dividend question, it's worth, worth also remembering that like some of this is reallocation of capital mm. between mm. different yeah. types of firms. So yeah. recycling dividends out of like old type firms with the hope that some of this is then invested in new firms mm. from sort of an economic economy level view is also quite important. So just a high level dividends alone necessarily mm. doesn't necessarily tell us a lot, but I think combined with the other piece of evidence we have, it suggests that some of it is just over overly paying shareholders. And overall the corporate sector is doing more saving in Britain than the household sector. Uh, right? I'm looking at one of the other yeah. authors in the audience. Yeah. It's like it's a corporate sector that does it. In the house, households in Britain basically aren't saving except for the houses. The, um, in aggregate, yep. um, and one of the things this report is trying to do is, to, like everybody I think now more or less thinks it would be good to get some more investment. Nobody wants to get face up to the trade-offs of how are we financing that higher investment, and it's either saving more or running or borrowing even more from abroad, which we've got yeah. quite, yeah. Back, we've got, yeah. we do quite a yeah. lot of. Again, yeah. where does Britain an outlier? Savings rates, like mm. what are we gonna, and where does that plausibly happen in Britain? Well, people only save into housing or pension in Britain, basically. The, um, 
which is amongst the reasons why you do, we're not America. We haven't got a load of people with loads of financial assets. Like, we don't have them. Right, okay. The, um, on the regional question, so David's got a question for us here, and I think you've touched on this well, Andrew, but the, um, insofar as we... So most of what is in this report, not most, not most, but not all in this report, is about the UK picture, which is the focus of the inquiry as a whole. But it is different across the economy. The, um, do we think levelling up per se gets us higher investment levels, or um, these are just separate issues? What do you think, Andrew? So uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity to play a very small part in some of the activity in the Midlands around you know, the, the start. The Midlands of the, engine? The Midlands engine. Not and, part of the engine. Well, uh, perhaps a, a spark plug in there. <laughs> but um, you know, um, you know, when I worked in that area, and I, I guess what I saw through you know, the devolution, it did bring together the public sector and the private sector in a, in a very determined and passionate way to come together to drive economic development in that area. So I, I do think that devolution is is important to that because you know and you know the, the you know a, a good partnership between the local authorities, you know the private sector, etc. In those areas does I believe lead to better decision making on things like transport and infrastructure, etc. Than central decision making out of London. But you don't want it too local. I mean, also the trade-off here is well, I th I think you don't want it all national. Kate doesn't want it too local because then mm. people will just say no to everything. Well, but I think I think if you look, you know, if you look at the combined authority, the Westminster combined authority, etc. I think there is good decision making there. And think, you know, again, if you take something like transport in terms of how to you know, even level up across a region in terms of you know, you know mm. movement of of the workforce yep. between different mm. places, I think yeah you know, the. Yeah, I think at that, that wider regional level, there is more understanding of the blockers and, and I think a more concerted, passionate effort to break down those barriers. Anna, do you want to come in on this? What, what, which particular problems do we see that are regionally differentiated? Well, I mean, actually, other work on the Economy 2030 inquiry has highlighted that if we want to level up our second tier cities, that we need massive, like tens of billions of pounds of investment. Scary amounts. To try and, try and close the gap between, say, Manchester and London. Um, so investment's really important. The question is, how, how do we best get it? And it has to be a combination of some of the national policies that we've talked about here on the overall UK investment environment to just make it a more attractive place to invest. But then within the UK, I think it's got to be about realising underlying potentials that maybe are not being realised, either because of planning barriers or because of financial constraints. And often, you know, it, it will be at the local level that people can understand and better deal with some of those barriers, but very much in a complementary way with the national frameworks. Great. Let's do the controversial stuff. So ownership. So basically, normally in this world, right, papers on investment in Britain, as Kate says, some of them have been written over the years. They um, uh, say, um, we need to become higher investment if you're writing from a, like a right-wing perspective, they say tweak the tax system and basically stop there. They might also say do some deregulation there after them. Uh, from another set of people, maybe on the softer left end of the market, you tend to get papers which say, don't say change ownership. They say corporate governance reform, change the basis of this is like the Will Hutton's, some of the Oxford lots stuff on like change the corporate governance code requirements on 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 boards how they behave so they're more in the like rules and the behaviors they're not into the like so you'd put us more in the like marxist end of the market which is it like this economic structure matters it matters who actually is the owner how much of the company they own um 
And I say those, that's really what's different about this report insofar as some of it is what people have said before, but really it's saying the ownership does matter. The, uh, and the, so on, and there's come, I want to come to the private versus public ownership in a second, but on the does ownership matter question, people used to say no. We've got a question here, Kate, you, maybe you can take it in this perspective, which is does, does concentrated ownership matter, which is our focus? Someone else is raising the question is, does foreign ownership matter? What do you think, Kate? I think, well, I, I was really interested in what you said about private versus public, yeah. because I've sat on the boards of three public companies, and at some point we've all, there's always a point at which you say, I wish this was a private company. There, honest, there honestly is. And it, this isn't because... You can't take a decision. Because, you're, because you can't quite take the decisions you want to take or you're, you're freighted in by some of the rules which make, your, which, make your life, which make your life difficult. And sometimes that is about investment. And this isn't about investment versus dividends. Mm -hmm. It's about investment versus, versus you know, profits, profits yeah. short-term profits in the profits in the short term. And I, I think there is really good evidence that concentrated ownership in the private markets is very helpful. But dominant shareholders can also be quite damaging. We have to be yeah. careful in yeah, assuming that all dominant shareholders are great people who have tremendous long-term... Robert Maxwell don't. was very um, lucky concentrated <laughs> in his ownership. Yes, uh, yeah. So we have to be, I think we have to be careful to say that's the solution. And I think there is a bit of, you know, there's a lot of concentration on... Um, by the way, I don't think foreign owners are necessarily any any worse. I mean, many of the big um, international pension funds own quite a, quite slabs of British industry, and they're probably quite. They, I think people yep. think of them as quite good owners. So I'm not sure. I so you're not. So you don't worry about. Ian's I don't. Question, I don't right? worry so much. I don't worry so much about um, about the the location of ownership. I do think that the real fragmentation of ownership we've got is not helpful. But don't focus so much on the direct equity market. And don't forget that a lot of the big companies are direct equity market. They're not really in Britain at all. They're global companies. They're global. Mining companies. They're global, they're global businesses. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Mining companies, that's definitely, um, that is definitely true. OK, let's do, let's do your point, which is, say you go with us in the argument to it would be better to have slightly more concentrated ownership or move in that direction to look less like an outlier. The, um, uh, where could that plausibly come from? Uh, if you went back five years ago, people would have said private equity is the answer, is, is the, answer the market, as you phrased it. That's the, that, how is the market solving that? It's solving it because managers plus some investors think there are problems with being a publicly listed company. They're making Kate's life difficult when they want to make decisions. Private equity is the answer. Take it out of public ownership. The managers can get on with their job. The question is, is that a better route than concentrated public ownership, or is it a, or is it a parallel route? Because you probably want a bit of both of these to go on. My slight challenge is: is that a five years ago view, or are we really confident that the quality of the ownership we get from the private equity sector? So the difference with concentrated other forms of concentrated mm. ownership is that private equity concentrated ownership tends to be shorter term mm. concentrated ownership. Yes, it's not family ownership. <laughs> it's it's not, not family, or somewhere in between family and like. Tens of a seven-year maximum. Seven max, right? and yeah. some people will be some, and some private equity people will be horrified by a seven-year yeah. exit strategy. So, are we sure that's the concentrated ownership you want? If the underlying problem is long-term investment strategies. No, I'm, I, no, I, 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 I'm certainly want to be the defender of the private equity industry okay. panel. I think it, you know, there's, 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 oh, go on. There are plenty of. Um, no, but I mean, you know, the private equity covers a whole multitude of yeah. uh, of, yeah. of different right, yeah. um, models. You know, some of which are, um, you know, straight asset stripping, and some of which, you know, do provide real value to the economy. And um, and so, you know, sometimes 
there are, you know, you know, situations where, uh, you know, models get a, a, a business model can be better hmm. invested in outside of the public hmm. markets, and, the, yeah. and, and and they and you know, or a roll up when lots of companies have pulled together mm-hmm. and you create something, and they tend to come back to the public markets afterwards, you know, quite often, so, so, you know, so as one of the exits. So, but I mean, you know, but I, do you have, insofar as we're suggesting some things which are basically quite disruptive, right, to the Britain's ecosystem to get that concentrated I think control. it's hard to get that concentrated mm. control through the public markets, though, I think. Mm. Um, I just, I don't, I don't see how, I mean, you know, in, in, um, in the public markets, 3% is, tends to be quite a big stake, uh, you know, and um, whereas, you know, controlling shareholders normally seen as somebody who has thirty percent. So you know, it's hard to get. To so that is quite a British view. If we st- so if we step back and look across the world, pension funds do provide that. A lot. They don't provide thirty percent, right? But like in Canada, Australia, the Netherlands, you are getting much higher percentages mm. as as a normal stake in some. And they're directly investing. They're not track. They're not passively investing via tracker funds. They're like I. I'm mm. like mm. engaging with the management. I, I, get, I guess perhaps a, a slightly different perspective on this as well, because I, I guess the, the conversation is really focusing on public listed businesses, larger businesses. I think yep. one of the challenges that we really have is that there isn't any you know, sort of like vent, you know, the venture capital yep. sort of you know, early stage development funding in the UK, I think, is less developed. So I think pri- private equity is really pushed upwards. One, it wants usually to be majority and you know, it, you know, it doesn't want to invest, you know, less than five to ten million pounds. Yeah. So actually, what you've seen is, you know, the uh, private equity is sort of pushed up, and I think there's, there is this gap underneath yeah. where those businesses that could make through, where do they go to? Why don't Why don't you fund them? Well, I think you know, if you look at the, um, you know, the regulatory environment that the the banks, you know, are in, it's not economically viable to provide that type of risk capital and i think you know that that's you know i think a so conscious explain that to people it's because because you're in a because you're a bank because we're because we're because we're a bank the way we regulated you know if you went back you know probably to the start of my career banks would have been probably more providing mezzanine equity financing yeah. off the balance sheet um you know some of that you didn't go particularly well in 2008 and and therefore I think, yeah, rightly, the decision has been to de-risk the traditional banking sector, which means that you know, for the capital that we would have to hold behind say, an equity investment, it doesn't make, make sense. So yeah. you know, there are, we need other providers in the market to do that. But I think that is a gap which, which does exist and is perhaps stopping some of the investment coming through to the right. early stage firms. Christian, why don't you come in on, on this? What, why, like, this would be hard, right, these changes. They're about big ecosystem change. Um, is it definitely worth the hassle of focusing on ownership I think, and worker yeah. power from below? I think we can see from sort of a series of different studies that ownership does matter. So there's a few studies that were done focusing on asset managers in particular and seeing when they generate value through engagement, how's that's done. And a lot of the times it isn't necessarily like voting at AGMs. It's just speaking to management, pushing them on their operational strategy and then putting in, taking action when, when it's needed to ensure that what you think is the most profitable strategy is the one that goes through. Um, And I think what we've seen in the UK is that not only, well, foreign ownership does matter in as much as it comes, when it comes with dispersed ownership. So a big pension fund in Canada holding a large stake in a UK UK company is quite positive probably because they have the incentives to properly monitor management. Um, But if they're sort of, if it's a small stake in in a quite distant, um, fund, then maybe they, w- they won't invest the same amount of time making sure that 
management um, are scrutinised. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it, there is quite good effort, evidence it does have um, an impact. And just turning to some of the things on private equity, there's also a few studies there which show that similar companies on public markets and private markets, you can see that in the private markets, they're sort of investing more and have more long-term focus. Um, and sort of Nick Bloom's work on management practices also shows that some of these private companies are, are much better managed as well. Let's briefly do planning. Can you pass me the controller? I want to. So I was thinking, I learnt lots from the, you all doing this work. So thank you for that. One thing that like a chart that shocked me when you first showed it to me is this one. So Kate, you say, so just focus on the United Kingdom line. This is saying there's been no increase in the amount of built on land in Britain per capita since 1990, unlike every other G7 economy. Now. You say we, we have been like people have known the planning system was suboptimal for some time. I didn't think it was that we were that out on a limb, but did you? Did, is this obvious to you? Uh, well, the first thing I say it's not obvious to me, it's suboptimal. Okay, go on. Um, and there's another, another question which is that there's an incredible dispute about how you measure built up land. Right. So, and unless you're going to take me right through where all I'd this like data to not do that now, where all five this, minutes left, yeah, where all this data has come from, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I believe it, but I did look at some other data before I came here today, which broadly confirmed this conclusion that actually went going up to 2021. So, so but, actually, but, at, but to be frank, a lot of people in the planning world, probably this would be related to England, you were right to remind me of this, Anna, beforehand, yeah. rather than the whole of the UK, would say this has been a big success of policy. It's left us with a lot, it's left us with a lot of land to do things like solar, to grow, to go and visit. And, you know, and equally in the report, you comment on the fact our cities aren't very dense, which doesn't suggest that you want to increase the area, doesn't suggest to me you want to increase the area of built up land. So I, it, I don't look at this and think this is necessarily suboptimal. I do Why think, do you think everybody else has done something different? Well, one thing is that they, it, with the exception of the Netherlands, but of course the Netherlands has a completely different topography yeah. from the UK. Why flat? Yes. I wasn't going to say that, so that was rather rude. The Netherlands <laughs> has a completely different topography from the UK. Aesthetically displeasing. Um, oh. It's really boring. Seriously, it's bad for your soul. <laughs> There's nothing to aim for. You're just always here. Anyway, sorry, keep going. We're off topic. I, guess, I was going to say, I live in a very flat area. I quite like it, actually. Anyway, moving... I, my wife's from Lincolnshire. We have this route all the yeah, time. Moving, yeah, moving... You're, you're, not, you're not helping to the top. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you, I, you got me on a hobby horse. <laughs> flat equals bad. So, assuming I believe the state, it's not clear to me it, it, it's suboptimal, but the question... But it still it is a raises a question of we still haven't used the land we have got in the built-up area as well as we might. We probably well, that is also we, we haven't we haven't we haven't densified it as much as we mm -hmm. should, and it doesn't deal with the question that you rightly raise in the report about the fact that around Oxford and Cambridge, which are really good strong growing areas, there is terrific demand for laboratory space, which the planning system, because you say you know plans and make them work, that's kind of true. But actually, what's happened in Oxford and Cambridge in the time of the plans is just much greater than they foresaw, and so plans also rather boringly have to be flexible and this is the real challenge for the planning system that they have to be firm and decisive and yet flexible that's really hard that's hard right let's do a quick poll and i'm going to you the panel can give us their answers to this here we go and then we're going to wrap up and let everyone go to their low investment lives so right lots of this is hard it requires political capital to make it happen what is the what would be the priority so I was actually talking to a board of a large company the other day, talking through some of this stuff. And my le handing back to you is that the first thing, which is 
the kind of changes we're talking about to the pension system and ownership would definitely upset some bosses, was my takeaway from the uh, discussion that followed. The, um, so is that the top priority? So con is concentrated ownership basically the top priority? Is it workers having more of a voice? As Simon said, lots of other countries do it. Britain did it to Germany. Good idea. Is that where the priority is? Is it upsetting councillors? Not councillors. It's their Pol voters. Mm. Oh, okay. You, early, you said politicians earlier. Now you're blaming the people. Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, because they, they're responding to the the, the okay. councillors. Okay. Is it all of you lot plus the councillors through whom you mm -hmm. uh, speak, or is it uh, upset the Marxists because the most priority is lower corporation tax? Let's go round. Christian, what's your top political capital priority? Um, I'd say planning. You want to do some planning? You want to do three? Andrew? Yeah, I've got three as well. Planning. Right, good. Who do you want to upset? Yeah, well, well, rather boringly. I mean, I don't. I just don't think you can. Um, you can legislate activist shareholders. I think we have a pretty vibrant market. And so this just means this just this is a reading from structural change to give us more concentrated yeah, ownership. And I don't think that. Um, and much as I like the idea of putting workers on boards, um, I, I, if I was expending political capital, I think you'd have to go for the planning system. I think without that, you just. Kate, I have to go for the planning system. Oh my god! <laughs> right, Anna, just don't. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'd already written it down. I would go for planning because cities are so crucial for growth, for kind of net zero. There's the broader net zero infrastructure. Um, this affects where firms are, clusters, innovation, so planning. Okay, I'm going to make the counter argument, which is, I think planning is where like the British centre of technocracy slash policy thinking is as the key, as like the thing, partly because it feels easier to pull the lever, right? Because government sets the planning system, so it feels doable. In the real world, Britain just does stand out as having managers, lower quality management, and, all things, and, then with, and no story to ourselves about how that is connected to low investment. And we stand out as having managers without much pressure from above or much pressure from below. Yes, pressure on dividends and like actual like short-term financial metrics. Mm. And basically, everyone like talks around that issue and then wanders off somewhere else to pretend that we're going to like it's somehow management is suddenly going to start behaving massively different. And in the end, I just don't believe they are unless you sort one and two. So I'm for upsetting the bosses. They, um, but that's mainly just to be perverse. They, um, right, let's see I what think, the punters I do think. I do think like, which one? Uh, which, one which one do you want? Like, All of them. We're, the rest of us going to choose one. I know, so I'm cheating. That's what sharing gets. <laughs> you know, that's what you know. That's what comes. If people say responsibility comes with power. They're wrong. <laughs> right, let's get the results for the punters. Which one do they want to do? Let's see if they agree with you all on planning. That's it. Well done, punters. I'm back in favour of democracy again. Mm -hmm. uh, they, um, although maybe we've got a lot of people from trade unions uh, watching today. <laughs> Great. Okay, let's just do closing thoughts from each of you then on the pl is Britain completely stuck in its low investment world? And in the end, that is, does mean in the medium term, low, lower living standards um, for everybody. Or is there, you know, is it possible that over like a 15 year period we move to, and this, this project is not about short term changes, it's about what's the longer term direction for the country, or is there hope for a high investment future? Simon. Um, well, I, uh, I'm, that tends to be pretty bearish about the Asia outlook. I think that uh, we're in a sort of Brexit doom loop. And um, uh, so the, I don't think we're gonna get we out. Were, we weren't investing before. But I don't think we're gonna get out of that until um, I mean, I think if we, I think the, the main challenge is to get out of that and create some kind of political stability and a sort of and a position and vision for the country that people can invest in. You need a story. People invest in stories, and we need a story. So I think that's the, the absolute first thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, but I do, I, I do think that um, 
you know, I mentioned it, you were, you were a bit sceptical, but I do think that on a long-term basis, education, financial education, no, no, I'm scientific education has to be an important part of it. If you say we've got a poor management uh, cadre in Britain, that's part of it too, you know, other parts of the world. You know. He doesn't mean you, Andrew. All the, all the other managers. <laughs> but if you look, <laughs> like, you know, you know something, a country like Spain, for example, has sort of four of the top 10 business yep. schools in Europe. Mm -hmm. There's a much more of a culture mm -hmm. of people going through oh, business schools. I think we have a, you know, we have a, a serious problem with languages in this country, which is a problem with global Okay. Businesses, so I think that there's uh, there are lots of um, so, so your think, basic answer is no, we're not going to get better. No, I think we, well, I think I think we there are I think we in the short term we need to sort out the planning system. Yeah. Uh, I, so I don't think that the, I don't think that the availability of finance is an issue. I think okay. we have a pretty vibrant market. I think we're in danger of. I mean, the city is under pressure, and we're seeing that. But I don't think that 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 is the core problem. Great, Andrew. I think I'm. I think I'm optimistic over the the medium to long term. I, I, we, you know, we have some really big structural issues that we need to to get through. But I, I guess you know I, we've got you know huge number of assets um, you know to to play with. We need to unlock them, which we've been talking about. And you know what strikes me as well, you know, meeting you know, business owners across the UK is just the, the amount of resilience and adaptability that businesses have shown. We've got through. You know, I guess we just forget about COVID, but you know the stress that we've been mm. through the UK economy and businesses have survived, and you know are largely coming out the other end in an okay place. I think gives me huge optimism for for the future. Don't coming out the other end? Are we just are we just going into the end, aren't we? Oh, right, don't drag him back. Like, <laughs> we're just, just pretending to enjoy the optimism uh, for a second. Yeah, they're not investing very much, and it turns out they're not able to grow without creating some inflation. So, uh, Christian, where are we where are we heading? Um, we're in a hundred pages. Yeah, what is the conclusion? I think I'm overall pretty um, optimistic. I think from sort of a big picture argument, um, sort of the fact internationally that lots of countries are thinking more strategically about how they can influence firms to invest for priorities like net zero, for example, will mean that more focus in policy world here um, is placed on such ideas. So I'm, I'm hopeful that sort of like that ecosystem can change. Kate. I'm also optimistic. I think we can. I think we can change. I think there are issues about management. We've banged on about this for years. Yeah. We haven't done very much about it. It seems to be a difficult, seems to be a difficult problem to fix. And even importing foreign managers doesn't always seem to help. So I'm not just referring to the Premier League here. Um, but education is a good one. I was at a conference this week. So I'm doomed to go to conferences on pensions. Somebody talked about a survey they'd done of people about their DC pensions. Half of them thought it was a form of tax. They had no idea that it was linked to investments in anything. Right. I thought I was going to be optimistic, but then it just makes us all look like morals. No, 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 because, <laughs> no, because, because, because you can check, because you have to know what the problem is before you change it. Very good. OK, and last word to you, Anna. You kicked us off. Bring I'm, us home. I'm also optimistic. Um, optimistic that we can do better, because we know that there are a lot of things we can fix with the right commitment. Um, and although we're in this really difficult situation now, I think beginning to set up a credible strategic approach, like Christian said, um, is so fundamental to just giving businesses some certainty that actually there is going to be a brighter future. But if we continue without clarity on that, plus all the short-term pressures and without encouraging this investment through all the different policies that we've discussed, plus human capital, which is absolutely crucial, then obviously things look worse. But I, I'm optimistic that we can do a lot better. Excellent, Anna. I knew you'd be optimistic at yeah. the end. You can always be counted on. Right, OK. Um, <laughs> let's wrap up. And I liked your actual countries with a narrative 
point because that is basically what this economy 2030 inquiry is trying to do is trying to step back and say from the level of the country as a whole what is the plausible route not, not like the perfect not like the imaginary one what is the plausible route to getting into a better place over the medium term and having that in your head and then making steps towards it so that is what we're trying to do now you all need to go away start raising your investment levels bit less cake, a bit more investment, everybody. That is what is going to give us a better Britain. See you at a Resolution Foundation event soon. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.